once again, my name is Andre Sospina. I direct the charter membership program and our pitchdex.com division. If uh, more than welcome to have our panelists come up on stage now. Go ahead, grab a seat. Thank you very much. Uh, I will also be uh, your master of ceremonies today, as well as moderating panel one. Uh, but I always like to get a little feedback from the audience in terms of um, the type of deals and industries that you're representing. So uh, with a show of hands, can you please raise your hand if you're representing a, a real estate firm or a real estate deal in any asset class, nice and high? Fantastic. How about software? Software companies, manufacturing? few hands. Oil and energy. Excellent. Agriculture, including cannabis. Fantastic. And fund managers. I'd like to see just fund managers nice and high. Excellent. Thank you. So round of applause for everybody here and for, and for our panelists of the day. I ask for a lot of participation. I'll ask you to, to clap. Hope you guys don't mind. But thank you for being here. Thank you to all of our members, our sponsors. Um, and, and one last raise of hands, if you and I have spoken on the phone or have exchanged an email. Excellent. Great. Thank you. Uh, so today's panel, today's first panel, uh, will be private investor preferences. What legal structures, fees, and models are preferred right now? Uh, so I'm going to give each panelist a quick two minutes uh, to please uh, let us know your name, uh, the firm you're representing, and, uh, and just a little bit more about yourself and, and your industry. So, uh, so we can start uh, with uh, Roddy, please. Uh, good morning. Is that working? Yes. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I'm Roddy Balfour, and um, I've been a fiduciary for many, many years, and I'm now part of the Equium Group, which is in 16 or 17 jurisdictions, and so we look after people from all sorts of countries who are investing in the sort of LLPs that you are running. Now, I'm not here to talk about running LLPs in the United States, but I think there is a general lack of awareness about what is happening in the offshore world and what is happening to those clients who want to invest into the US, into your LLPs. And so um, I'll be talking a little bit about the new substance rules that apply to all the offshore jurisdictions, uh, to the, um, the common reporting standard, which is the information, automatic information exchange. Neither of these things apply to you in the US, but they apply to your foreign investors. So delighted to take questions on that at any stage. Is that enough? Thank you. Yes. Uh, Randy. Good morning. Uh, my name is Randy Abels. I'm with RSM, the accounting and consulting firm. Uh, I'm a, uh, a specialist in family offices on structuring, working with family offices. I spend most of my time now consulting with family offices and private investors on how to really structure themselves, what's the best structure, um, you know, how they want to really do the investment, you know, and right now the big thing, especially with the family offices, most of them are going to direct investing, which has become very popular, and um, I think that's a good opportunity for a lot of people in this room. And uh, the other thing is, you know, we work with them on some of the due diligence and anything else that they need, but uh, the private investors and family offices, especially the intersection with private equities, become very a very healthy market. Thank you. Peter Collins. Um, I'm from Florida. I'm in the private equity real estate business. We sponsor funds uh, 
raising capital, investing capital in multifamily and commercial uh, from Texas to the Atlantic, north to Virginia and Tennessee. Uh, been in this business for about 22 years. Um, have many high net worth uh, investors. Uh, also serve on a couple of uh, large endowments uh, and, and pension fund boards. I chair the State of Florida Pension Fund Board and I uh, also chair the Florida State University Endowment. Um, enjoy coming to these uh, because of the people in the room, obviously. Um, we don't uh, invest up in this area, uh, but uh, we have several investors from this area. Excellent. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Liz Sigety, and perhaps I'm offering some diversity on the panel, but maybe not in the way you think. Um, <laughs> I'm an angel investor, so the investments that my group, which is Delaware Crossing Investor Group, uh, invests in are very early stage. Um, I've participated in a couple of these conferences over the last few years because I think family offices are getting more and more interested in this asset class, which is highly risky. Um, and very different than, I think, uh, the traditional asset class for family offices. Um, I founded Delaware Crossing about 15 years ago. We are regional investors. Delaware is the river. You know, Washington crossed the river. We invest on both sides of the river, including New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. So if you are an emerging company, you need to be located there. I'm also the um, co-chair and uh, the national co-chair of the Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Practice at Fox Rothschild, which is a large national firm, and I represent emerging companies and, in some instances, family offices that are investing in that asset class, as well as institutional and, uh, you know, super angel investors. So that's me. Thank you. I think, uh, yeah, each one of you should have a microphone, right? Well, good morning. I'm Holland Sullivan, and uh, I work from inside a family office. Um, I have uh, run a single-family office uh, for the Nicotine Patch Inventor previously, and currently work on a multi-family office structure with George and Scott Register out of Atlanta. Our focus is primarily in uh, manufacturing. Very interested uh, to speak with some of you in that space. We make a lot of direct investments and also facilitate uh, other families joining us in JVs. Uh, a lot of cross-border factory relocations, uh, by the way. Jobs created in America as a result. Thank you. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Benson. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Real Estate. Uh, we are a commercial self-storage operator out of Roswell, Georgia, not too far away from you. Uh, we are vertically integrated. We buy and manage uh, the facilities across the southeast. We're the 25th largest self-storage operator in the U.S. And I think from my perspective on the panel, um, like you, Peter, we have a, a number of high net worth uh, individuals who um, have invested alongside of us. And so I think the structure in which we try to develop our deals is to create mutual incentives. And uh, that's what I'm trying to share with you today. Excellent. Thank you so much. So one more time, round of applause for our panelists before I start drilling them with questions. Excellent. So I, I definitely want to start off with a, a lot of conversations. Uh, and be, actually, before I start, just I know that there's some people sitting. We got a standing room only. But we do have a good amount of seats here in the first three rows. So don't be shy. Feel free to come up and, and find yourself a seat um, during the panel. So from there, uh, a lot of discussions have been around, uh, you know, are investors providing debt uh, or equity? Uh, and we've seen a growth in interest in providing uh, debt investments over the last decade. But uh, with your portfolio specifically, um, 
do you most often invest on the debt or the equity side now, and uh, and why? And uh, I'll start. I'll start with Elizabeth, well, the be, angel investor. Is this on? All yes. Right. Uh, so angel investors. I mean, obviously, the companies can't get a classic debt investment. Uh, they often don't have revenue, especially in the life science area. Uh, in the uh, technology area, it's very, very early stage revenue. So I'd say no, except we do uh, um, often invest in convertible debt, but really the play on convertible debt is that it's gonna convert to equity, and that's really all the angels care about, so. Excellent, thank you. And um, uh, Randy, I know, you, I mean, you, you serve you know, hundreds of family offices. What are you seeing more often? Well, you know, we have, our families go across the gamut in size and individual investors. Um, there is more of an appetite for debt as people are chasing returns, assuming they can get comfortable with the due diligence. But I also agree, uh, convertibles are very attractive because they're really looking for the equity. You know, a lot of people now are doing more of, I will call, you know, I won't call it the Uber type investment, but the investments where, you know, they know there's a big risk but there's also a big reward. A lot more people are doing those type investments, especially the very wealthy, as they're took, looking to expand their portfolio, called cannabis or whatever you want. But the big thing with a lot of the family offices now, they do not like a lot of them paying the fees, and they're looking to bring it inside. The other thing I've noticed with a lot of the families, they don't like the fact that they go into an investment with, say, private equity, and it's gonna be flipped in five years. A lot of them look for more of a long-term hold, where they wanna really be in it for a lot longer in the investment. Great, would anybody like to work off uh, what Randy said? Or I can pick. Oh, well, I can, I can follow on on that. Uh, in a wonderfully boring investment that we've been involved in in, uh, in New Mexico, a rubber glove factory. I mean, I, I'm going to win for more boring. I'm sorry, that was in New Mexico? <laughs> That's in New Mexico, yes. And what type of factory? Sorry. It, it manufactures rubber gloves. It, rubber it's gloves. literally the most boring product in the world, but the margins without giving too much away are, are quite substantial and quite attractive. So obviously we favor equity, we favor buy and hold, and we don't want to sell that unless it's worth more to someone else in their hands. Got it. Excellent. And uh, Chris, uh, you were talking about structures right before during your introduction. Yeah, I think we've we've definitely seen um, some more interest from the uh, institutional investor on the debt side as, as we've gotten later and later in the cycle. Um, I think to your point, Gert, uh, around if they can feel comfortable with the underwriting, it certainly provides a different risk profile. Uh, on the debt side, at least in self-storage. Um, you know, self-storage is one of the um, the asset classes that performed really well in the last recession and um, did not see a, a significant number of those properties being returned to banks. So, um, you know, typically we've seen that, but our investor base, uh, primarily the appetite for the scale of returns they're looking for, um, usually requires them to be on the equity side. Um, you know, with, with interest rates where they are, uh, yeah. Debt is very cheap right now for an operator like us, so it's hard to, um, uh, I guess, make that play between the equity and debt with our investors who are looking for a little bit more um, uh, meat on the bone as far as the returns are concerned. So I think it really depends on what the, the group's interests are and um, what their mandates are as far as the return profile. Excellent. Yes, Peter. The other thing I would say is um, being in the real estate business, if you're a, if you're new to direct investing and if, if if a lot of you out there are direct investing and if you're not investing through funds, um, especially in real estate, especially in the cycle that we're in, I would look at it, uh, I would look at either mezzanine or preferred equity. Um, I think that the returns look good, right? Development returns. I make some great looking spreadsheets, right? And 
But I would tell you from a risk standpoint, you can do just as well in preferred equity or mezzanine um, with less than half the risk. Uh, but it's difficult to do on a direct basis because you then have to go find that right group, right? You're then uh, sourcing deals, you're then doing due diligence on those teams, and so it's somewhat difficult. We have more and more people coming to us, funds coming to us wanting to invest mezzanine or preferred equity. And just aside on the, on the real estate side, if, if we're going to get a senior loan, um, the reason why if a recession comes, I don't think it'll be anything like it was in 08 is because the banks are still somewhat under control. Um, and most of it has to do with HVCRE, high volatility real, commercial real estate uh, loans. Uh, it's a provision that says you can't go over a certain percentage uh, uh, of debt. Well, that debt includes mezzanine, so there are many, many more preferred equity structures out there. So what I would tell you, um, you're going to have to do that due diligence of those individual teams, which um, if you're in a, a group that's doing that, great. Um, but if you're not, that's your biggest, I think it's your biggest pitfall. It's not necessarily the structure, it's the team. You can have a great structure, but a terrible team, uh, and you don't know it till it's too late. Great, thank you. And, and Rod, you, uh, with your kind of a, you know international perspective, what would you say uh, in terms of debt versus equity type investments? What are you seeing more of, especially amongst your clients and the families you're working with? Yeah, yes, I mean we we've seen quite a lot of investment inbound into um, U.S. real estate, tending to be from very wealthy families, and we've had some hybrid structures where we've used portfolio debt, which is in fact using debt from offshore trusts to help finance, and there's a complicated structure that helps to avoid FERTA. Although, since um, there have been some tax changes, and I'm not sure how totally effective it is, but um, you know, these are the things that many of our clients want to really uh, dive deep before they actually make the investment and see how they can optimize uh, you know, their, their US investments. Okay, got it, excellent, thank you. Uh, and getting right to, to the juice of it all, um, what, and as specifically as possible, please, uh, what type of deal flow, uh, investment manager, or direct investment would you like to source by being here on this stage today? What would you like to see? So uh, I'll, I'll, start, uh, I'll start with Chris at the end. Uh, Self-storage, of course. But if yeah, you elaborate. I, I mean, for, for us, certainly the deal flow on the self-storage side is, is always critically important. People have opportunities to, uh, to bring us potential off-market deals is always interesting. Um, I think the purpose of me being here is certainly on the equity side. So we're always looking to diversify our equity partners. Um, so I think that's probably my number one priority. We're in the midst of uh, raising a fund. And so we're always um, looking to diversify our investor base. And amongst all the different self-storage deal flow that you see out there. Uh, what, what differentiates one than the other? Let's say if they're even geographically similar. Uh, differentiate from an operational standpoint or just the property opportunities? Yeah, from an operational standpoint. Well, I think the operationals are probably pretty similar. Um, I think in storage right now, you've had a, a, a significant development cycle over the last uh, three years. Um, storage performed really well in the last recession, as I had said, so behind that came significant development um, as people tried to capitalize on that. 
I think um, you know for for us where the the value still is is um, we're trying to differentiate ourselves as where we're operating. So primarily we're operating in secondary and tertiary markets. It's where we have the opportunity to still create value. Right. Um, and while many people have gone out and done ground up development, um, our sweet spot really has been around value add. So the ability to acquire a cash flowing asset upfront and then doing something that's creating value of forced appreciation play. Um, and that may be a construction component. Um, you know, that may be adding some ancillary income items. Um, the interesting part about storage, uh, maybe a little bit different than multifamily, is there's still a significant number of operators that are mom and pop, right? So you have one or two facilities, and so the consolidation roll-up strategy that exists in the self-storage world is really where we see kind of our long-term opportunity. Great, thank you. And uh, and Roddy, uh, I know that you had mentioned that you saw a lot of investment in United States real estate. Anything outside of real estate that some of the families you're working with, investors, ultra high net worth individuals are, are definitely looking at out here in the United States? Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, I think they, they still see this as the land of opportunity. Um, but the, but the, most of the people we look after are entrepreneurs and they're not great at, they don't enjoy stock market investing. They do like to buy real assets and um, one of the interesting things you were talking about angel investing quite a lot of them are very happy to be angel investors and recommend to us as their trustees that we make a modest investment because obviously we have a, a, a different duty as fiduciaries um, but one of the difficulties is in fact finding any packages of startups uh, through any of the traditional uh, investment management houses uh, any specific industries that. No, they, it's usually something that they, they know about. And, uh, you know, they can have been paint manufacturers or they can have owned fishing fleets or any sort of thing, winemakers, etc. They use the form of funds. Well, usually, no, they, they want collected. to invest, but they don't necessarily want to go and, and do a complete angel invest in. They want to have a diversified portfolio of, of startups. In a, in a small way, but um, it's very difficult to achieve through traditional money managers. Got it. Excellent. Thank you. And I guess on the topic of angel investors, Elizabeth. Sure. So, so Delaware Crossing Investor Group is an angel investor network, which means that we have about 40 members, which is what we want to have. Um, and they all make their own individual investment decisions, but there's an application process and the screening committee brings uh, the companies that it chooses to the membership for their investment. And it is best when you're an angel investor to have a portfolio. Good thing about, to follow up on your point, um, the good thing about being in a group is it prevents you from making stupid decisions because there's other people in the group that know more about that industry than you do. We are industry agnostic. Um, what we look for is companies that really are in our region because that's our mission. Our, our founders, our members, a lot of angel investors are motivated by you know, certain causes or missions. Ours was they wanted to support entrepreneurship in this region. So that's why we are what we are. We want something that'll exit and make us money. We don't want a service business. We, we actually don't invest in real estate. We don't invest in entertainment or media. And we want something that will exit. Good management team uh, and a model that's defensible, solving a problem and uh, that somebody else can't do it really easily. So uh, in a good market. Yeah, we want everything. Basically, yeah. <laughs> that but has to be perfect. But, there's but it also takes things, work, but it's fun. You have to like it. There's also things you said you guys aren't investing in. Um, so I guess if you could just elaborate a little more on what you are investing in. I mean, obviously, okay. I'm assuming technology is definitely on that, but technology is a broad topic. Mm -hmm. uh, so like, 
what within technology would you guys say stands out for you, especially that you've seen? Well, I think we prefer um, usually B2B. Uh, sometimes we'll look at something that's a B2C model. Uh, when it's technology, we want them to have either a strong paid beta, uh, preferably paid beta, or really strong customers that will attest to them, but usually we want some sort of revenue, and that's our proof of concept. For life science, and remember we're also down in the Philadelphia area. Philadelphia has amazing life science companies. It's a hub in, this, in the United States. So those are obviously pre-revenue. Maybe they're you know, phase one. Uh, maybe even pre-clinical. So, um, but recently we've done some nano, we've done some sort of engineering-based. Often they'll have some sort of intellectual property, which makes them defensible. So it's usually technology or life science, but we did invest in a rum company once, lost our money, but it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Can I, can I just ask you a That's question? Great. Have you been going long enough to have a sort of established attrition rate, I mean, i.e. of failures? Because this is... Oh, we get a lot of failures. But, um, but do you, what sort of percentage would you say? Have you been going long enough to, to just say, we're prepared to do this to basically lose 20% of our money each year and hope that the other 80 make up for it? Or? Well, the, the learning in the industry, and it's surprising, Delaware Crossing has followed the learning, is that half of the companies you invest in will fail. And so you've got to be able to deal with that. And when I invest, and I've invested in 40 or 50 companies, but very small amounts, it's a, por it's a portfolio. And I think that's really the best way to do it. So half of the companies fail, maybe six and seven, you get your money back. You know, eight, maybe you get two. Nine, you get five. And then we had the 17. You know, if you figure out the math, you're making money. It, um, you know, we had a huge exit a couple years ago, and then we had a fiver, sixer. Last year, we have another one coming, and that's, that's the way you do it. But half of them fail. I, so. I, I would say, too, uh, going on that, Don't we, have, we have several investors of right. ours who have been high net, are, are high net worth individuals that were very successful in building a business. And they think because they were very successful in building that business, they can identify other opportunities that's outside their sphere. What right? industry were they in? Well, it doesn't matter. Some of them were I'm money. Just curious. Some of them were money managers, right? Um, we've got some very uh, savvy money management people, but that have never operated a piece of real estate, yeah. right? Except their house. But they right? think because they're managing money. They but they think because, hey, look, I, I'm making millions of dollars, or I sold my company for millions of dollars, that that translates immediately. Um, what what. What doesn't translate is, is just that, that specific knowledge of that area. The intelligence is there, obviously. The desire is there. Um, and when you ask, what do we come looking for? Um, I come looking for people that, that the first thing they say to me is, I don't know a lot about real estate, but I'd like to invest in it. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I would tell you is the same thing, Elizabeth. Don't go out and pick one piece of property and say, that's my white whale. Right? That's that's what's gonna ha that's what's gonna do it. Yeah. Um, I would say, look, you've got to be diversified. Um, you take a little chunk here. You take a little chunk here. You start out preferred equity. You start out mezzanine debt. Don't go for the home run. Right? Just because you've been extremely successful in what you've done doesn't mean you're gonna hit a home run in the very next thing you do. Um, I think it's you got to be cautious. Uh, we've been at this 22 years. I've lost lots of money too. Right? Um, but. But our fund is, ne I've never had a fund that went negative. I've had properties with those, within those funds that went negative, but I've never had a fund. We're top quartile, second quartile, nothing lower than second quartile in prequin. So 
diversification is important, but I would just stress, I come looking for people that say, look, I don't know a lot about real estate. I'd like to be invested in it. I'd like to be diversified. And I've had some of the best investors that I've ever had. And I wouldn't say this in, in, a, in a group of pension funds, but 80% of our investors are pension funds or foundations endowments, not high net worth. They're the least valuable investors I have, right? Because it's just money. They bring nothing to the table. Now, you can argue money's the most important thing, right? And it's the worst part of what I do, but is raise money. But the best deals that I've ever gotten have, been, have come from individuals that just pick up the phone and say, hey, so, I know you're doing this. You should take a look at this. Got it. So I do want to take some questions from the audience in a moment. But just really quick, in a, just in five seconds, areas, geographic areas that you guys are acquiring in. For real Me? estate, yes. Uh, we do the southeast, from Texas to the Atlantic, north to Virginia and Tennessee. Today, we also own about a half a million square feet in Puerto Rico, which is yeah. not falling apart, by the way. Um, great, great. Uh, Randy, uh, once again, from your wide perspective, what are you seeing? What, what are the families that you're working with looking for? What are they keeping their eyes Well, to follow up on your for? point, diversification is very important. We take a look at their portfolios. I will tell you, after the last three years, hedge funds are, have become a lot, very out of favor. People are dropping their allocations in hedge funds. They're increasing their allocations in real estate, private equity. The other thing, if you work with families that have younger generations, Impact investing is still a big deal, mm -hmm. especially brought up by the younger folks. Yes. And I will tell you, impact investing, there's a lot of different definitions, but the deals are tougher to find, and you're not really looking for economic return, but this is something that the younger generation, so it causes a lot of problems within the families, and this is where governance becomes mm -hmm. very important and how the families run themselves. Yeah, I think that part of what we're seeing even is for the impact investments out there, sometimes the best thing to do is to not go in first stating that it's an impact investment because for a lot of investors, they're not thinking that that's going to be where the returns are. So to go in with that right off the bat may not be the strongest strategy. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. I do. Colin, please. I was, I, one thing that we saw in when we've been hiring, particularly in uh, Native American communities, uh, particularly hiring in hiring hiring for employment, yeah. uh, we found that there is an impact effect, and it's very beneficial. Unemployment can be deep into double digits, but the the primary driver of it is that there is a large, almost inexhaustible labor force, and things like impact investing or the ESG overlay enhance our diligence process. So when we look at something like governance, if we're bringing a Korean factory owner over, what kind of governance do we have over this U.S. entity? We, we actually inserted a CFO of our own choosing into that so that we would see some reporting out that was more compliant and familiar to our standards. So I think if you shape the opportunity in a way that's familiar, then I think everyone walks away with a better understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. If I could, what we're looking for, I think yes, that was please. a theme. I, I'll just, I'll bluntly ask, if you, if you own a factory and would like to see it uh, either relocated or uh, incentivized in ways that might not be currently available. You might be in a fund or you might be a family that has a portfolio company. We have that structure. I'd also say that if you're in an area that's fertile for uh, manufacturing development, we're looking at other states. New Mexico is our focus, but we've looked at Georgia. We've looked uh, actually at Idaho and my home state of Texas, where I lived for 30 years. I'm New Yorker for the last 10, though. The wife won on that one. But uh, I am very eager to, to explore new territories. We can't, we can't perform diligence on 50 states, so we're very interested in those opportunities. Another key bucket that we're looking for 
real estate. What we do becomes very land hungry very quickly, and we can enhance the value of land that you buy. So we're happy to partner with those that are interested in acquiring real estate. I'm not going to denigrate the whole opportunity zone phenomenon. I think there's value in it, but I think it's got to be a good deal and a good rationale that happens to have that as a benefit. <laughs> we have a parcel of land now, 150 acres. We want to buy it. We'd love to have an experienced real estate partner that helps drive that part of it. We'll put the factories on top and drive the true development of it. But uh, that's something we're looking for. So anyway. Excellent, excellent. So if we can have uh, mics ready, because I do want to take some questions from the audience. Uh, let's, we can start. Uh, if you raise your hand. Great. I saw this gentleman's hand go up first, so I do want to acknowledge that. Your name, sir? Uh, Joe. Joe? Joe? Yeah. Great. Joe, microphone's coming to you right now. Uh, Elizabeth, what's the size of your investments per angel? Per, 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 per individual per angel? angels? Yes. Um, it's small. It's really small. So per angel, it's $10,000, but we put an LLC together, so we're investing maybe a quarter of a million dollars, but the rounds are usually, I'd say, 750000 to $2, 3000000 dollars, and we're part of a syndicate. We work with a lot of other angel groups, so it, once uh, there's someone leading the investment, it's usually pretty easy to get the rest of the round. Timeline is what? Oh, it's long. <laughs> Everybody's going to love angels by the end of this one. Uh, so usually you apply to the screening committee. If you're lucky, you'll get in in a month later. And then uh, there'll be a, a month of due diligence and then maybe a month to close the round. So it's a few months if everything goes smoothly, which it usually does not. But there's no Thank fees you. you know, to apply to us. It's completely free. Um, and it, it's painful, but when it works, it works really well. Where do I apply? <laughs> DelawareCrossing.org. DelawareCrossing.org. Thank you. Fantastic. Next question. Okay. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Camille Holmesy. Uh, my question for Holland is uh, uh, moving factories and repositioning them in uh, different areas of needs for different benefits, tax or for uh, uh, productivity, it requires uh, uh, labor training, management training. And uh, in, in, in order to do this, can you give us more details on how oh, do you accomplish this and the time frame that it would take? So it depends on the, the type of uh, labor that's being trained. So in the, in the case of the Navajo Nation, there are many skilled artisans. It's a very, I'd say, artistic culture. And so fine handwork, that sort of thing, has a long cultural basis. The Raytheon facility in that region has virtually no turnover and uh, excellent results in training up a labor force. In terms of time, what I have been told is six months to a year for typical, I'd say, intermediate level factory work. That's not the same thing, frankly, as executive management. Now, I, the fun part about where I am right now, the lead partner in this process wants to be fired. He doesn't want to be a rubber glove factory CEO. That wasn't his ambition in life. But he would love for someone local learning under his tutelage to rise up and eventually fire him. Kind of, the, I guess, the Sith Lord approach to executive management. But the, the, the idea really is that a lot of the training can only happen on site once you're there in context. I'd point out, too, uh, there are a number, at least in the state of New Mexico, and I'm sure every state has it, uh, programs like JTIP, LIDA, et cetera, this acronym soup of tax subsidies. And if you have a local state partner that affiliates with you, you can very quickly have those costs offset. So you can't necessarily shorten the time, but you can minimize or eliminate the cost. Fantastic. Thank you. I want to take an, uh, a question from, from the middle of the room. And I have someone all the way in the back. Charlie's on it. 
Fantastic. Give a round of applause for Alan and Charlie, setting up this whole room, running the microphones. Man. Your name, sir? Chris Bentley. Hi, Chris. Um, for the real estate investors, uh, do you guys consider mineral rights as part of the real estate asset class uh, that produce oil and gas royalties? And do you invest in them? Uh, Peter? We don't invest in mineral rights. Um, I've never even sold a mineral right from underneath one of our properties. Uh, sometimes we buy the properties and they, they, they've already had the mineral rights sold off by a previous owner. Um, just not what we do. Um, I, uh, so just no experience there. Got it. Anybody yeah, else? essentially we're the same thing. So uh, typically if, if it is land that um, had mineral rights that it's typically sold before, before we purchased it. Any experience here on, on mineral rights? Well, I did see another group that bought many thousands of acres north of the area that we were developing stalled a bit in their development projects, and mineral rights became a way for them to buy a bit of time. So they were selling coal on their site, and uh, they had a rail spur and some other infrastructure in place to support that. But not in terms of legal structuring, just in terms of a way to buy yourself time while you're further developing a property. Hmm. Interesting. Great. Uh, next question. Right here uh, on the wall. Fantastic. Yeah, my name is Lewis. Uh, just a question. I, I think it's pretty well known that uh, commercial real estate in New York has come down at least one-third in the last year. Residences are not being filled. Buildings are still being built everywhere, downtown Brooklyn, everywhere in Manhattan. What could possibly be the rollover effect of something like this on your operations in general? Fantastic. Who, who would like to take this one? I, uh, I, I would say that... Um, just one second. Okay. Chris, did you have... No, you go ahead, Peter. We don't invest in the Northeast, um, but I would say that what he's described is, is not a, a, a distinct phenomenon just to the Northeast. Um, I think there are several parts of the country where that is happening. I, I think the latest statistics I saw were three out of the four new apartment buildings in New York are, are unsold. Um, Certainly there's oversupply. The issue becomes in every market cycle, land price in real estate, right? Uh, people have to raise the rents to make the land price increases work. Uh, obviously construction has gone up quite a bit. Time of construction has gone up quite a bit because we don't have enough skilled labor in the construction business to adequately build what we need to build in, in a reasonable amount of time. So those costs are going up. Uh, I think that uh, also, you know, rents seek a peak. There's certainly there's certainly with some capacity, but most of what's getting built is the highest rent stuff because that's what they can. That's the only thing they can build to pay for the real estate. So uh, I don't think that's indicative of the uh, of real estate all over. In 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 terms of there's plenty of stuff getting done that's being done and sold uh, at good prices. Uh, but I think the high end is what you're seeing happening. Uh, and I think that that's going to be not so good for a while. Fantastic. Any, any final remarks from any of our speakers here? Last things you want to say? Great. Just want to give that a chance. All right. So uh, big round of applause for our first panelists here. But I do got one thing to say before they get up on stage. Thank you so much for our first panel of our way. Oh, before you get off stage. So everybody, so uh, what I do sincerely, seriously, assertively ask, please, 
from everybody in this room. As our panelists are walking off stage and being ushered to the networking room, please give them adequate amount of room to exit and be able to go to the room and then have those conversations in the room that we have designated for those introductions and for those meetings and for those communication exchanges, okay? Can we agree on that? Thank you so much, everybody. Round of applause for our first panelist, and I'm gonna bring up our next speaker.